this question, faith or good works, how do you get to heaven? Uh, humanity has pretty much throughout history presented two different responses. It's either faith or it's good works. It's either something that you do, something that you're capable of doing, live your life, or it's something that you believe. And that's really what we saw in the video, right? Like I said, there were some people who said, I believe you have to have faith in Jesus. There were other people who said, well, with that question mark at the end, well, it's good works, right? I'm not entirely sure. Um, It's how you live your life. It's how you behave. It's how you treat other people. I don't know, but I definitely know it's not not doing these kinds of actions, right? And I think the people who in the video uh, fascinate me the most are are the ones who... um, seem inconvenienced by the question, did you catch those people who asked on the street, how do you get to heaven? They're like, I don't have time for this, right? As if uh, the question, what are you having for lunch, would be more important than the question, what happens to you after you die? How do you end up in heaven? I think those people are the most fascinating. I I don't know what it is. They're just stuck on the here and now. They have no uh, concept of, of what might happen at the end of the 70, 80, 90 short lot years that they have to live. Um, but for us, it's such an important question that we're going to look at this question again in Galatians 3, kind of from a different angle. If you were here last week, uh, you know, we, we might kind of retouch on some of the same themes, but it's going to be from a different angle. And if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to uh, download the, the message, uh, the audio from our website, and you can listen to it. I want to start by reading Galatians chapter 3 verses 1 through 14. And if you guys have your Bibles, you can follow along, or it's going to go up on the screens as well. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Okay, as usual, there's a lot going on here. I don't know about you guys, but a lot of times... When I read my Bible at home, I cruise through like a chapter at a time. And then for some reason, when I get here on Sunday, I read like three verses. And I'm like, whoa, we got to stop there because there's so much going on here. That's kind of the case this morning. Paul starts out this section of his letter actually with some of the strongest language that we find him using in the entire New Testament. 
um, at least all of his writings in the New Testament. And I think that the reason the conversation gets so heated here is uh, he sees apostasy looming on the horizon, and he wants to do everything he can, anything in his power, to convince the audience, the people at the churches in Galatia, to steer clear of that apostasy. Apostasy is just walking away from the truth of the gospel, the truth of the good news of Jesus. The Galatians, they're, they're on the verge of making a massive mistake. And Paul wants to correct them. He wants them to understand the truth. They're about to walk away, ultimately walk away from their faith in Jesus for something different. And Paul's heart breaks for them in this moment. And, and if they buy into this message that's being preached to them by these false teachers who've come to these churches in Galatia, these teachers that are saying, in addition to Jesus, you also need to be circumcised. If they buy into that message, then they're ultimately going to be walking away from the cross of Christ, trusting in a different message entirely, and saying that what Jesus did for them on the cross was not enough. And it is urgent, as Paul understands the situation, urgent. And they're trusting, ultimately, if they choose to believe that circumcision is necessary for their faith, they would be choosing to believe in a works salvation instead of faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Okay? So, for Paul, there's seriously nothing worse that he can think of than the people of Galatia turning their back on the cross and slowly slipping away from their faith. And so what he does is he throws down the gauntlet here. And he does it through six questions that I want us to kind of unpack. Okay? First one comes with an exclamation and then a question. He says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And I think Paul is almost in shock. Um, I had an experience sort of like this in college. I, I've probably mentioned before my friend John. This was a kid who, in high school, was, uh, he was the same grade in school as me, but he was a guy who was a catalyst to my faith. He introduced me to the writings of Jonathan Edwards, which, like, in high school, you know, most people don't read Jonathan Edwards, and I was like, who is this guy? But I picked up this book because John said I should, and it was amazing, a, a revelatory book for me in my faith. He challenged my faith. We went on several missions trips together. Um, you know, we, we walked in the trenches of high school together in our faith in Christ. And, and he was uh, an amazing spiritual influence for me in my faith and love for Jesus. But in college, what happened to John was he started smoking a lot of weed and reading this incredibly stupid book that was a cult spinoff of Christianity. And uh, like so many false religions are, right? They, they have a shred of truth in them that relates to Christianity. And then they go off on these crazy, bizarre tangents, okay? So John finds this book in college. Um, and I'm sure none of you have even heard of it. It's very obscure and very bizarre. And it, it was written by some guy in the mid-1900s who claimed that one of the disciples, the spirit of one of the disciples, um, uh, possessed him and told him the true story about Jesus, right? And, uh, and at God's command, you know, told this spirit of the disciple to possess this dude and to tell him really what happened when Jesus was walking around on earth. And essentially, here's the story, okay, to, to fill you guys in. Um, in short, the earth was populated millions of years ago by aliens, okay? Uh, then we got cut off from our alien ancestors somehow, and uh, what needs to happen now is uh, the aliens sent Jesus to earth 
to give us the message of how we can be more like our alien ancestors, the way that we were supposed to be, so we could find enlightenment, and then one day the aliens are going to come back, and those who are faithful to this new way of living that's really the alien way of living that we were always supposed to do, would go with them to the, to the home world, okay? And uh, so the purpose of life, as far as this cult believes, is, I see some of you smiling, you're kind of like, what? Um, the purpose of life is to be good, to seek enlightenment, to rediscover your true alien nature so you can go to another planet. Okay, now you're thinking the very same thing that I was thinking when my friend John told me about this new faith that he was pursuing, and you're thinking the exact same thing that Paul is thinking as the Galatian church tells him, we're thinking about giving up Jesus and Jesus only to believe in Jesus and circumcision, Jesus and good works, right? He's thinking, are you crazy? This is what I'm thinking. To, this, is what I, this is what I said to my buddy John. I was, I was like, are you crazy? Like, we sat down in our dorm room, and he was like, guys, this is what's going on. And me and one of my other roommates, we all went to high school together. And, and we're like, dude, what is wrong with you? Are you nuts? Like, did you fall down the stairs this week and hit your head? What kind of drugs are you on? This is just insane. Like, why would you give up Jesus to believe in aliens? Are, are you crazy? You can't be serious. Like, really, you cannot be serious. But he was. Or Paul's response, right? You mean you're going to stop putting your faith in Jesus? And you're going to start believing in some garbage that it's Jesus and all these external things that you do? Like, what, what's wrong with you? Are you really that stupid? Would you really start and go down that road? Question two, after Paul moves beyond the shock, he reminds the Galatians of the empirical evidence they experienced at their conversion. Okay, and I use the word empirical. Empirical means that it's provable. There is proof to the experience that they had, proof to the revelation that God gave them. He says, did you receive the Spirit? In my Bible, it's a capital S, meaning the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, the the God who comes and dwells in us when we surrender our lives to Jesus and trust him for faith. He says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by uh, hearing with faith? Which was it? Was it some work that you did, or did God come and dwell in your hearts and in your life because of the message that you heard that you believed? Paul asked them, after I came to you, you trusted in Jesus, some incredible things began to happen. Unbelievable things. Literally, that word, unbelievable. I mean, they were not believable. As the gospel message spread, people began to disbelieve some of the things that had been done. Jesus displayed his awesome power through the work of the Holy Spirit. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see some of the things that the disciples did that were unbelievable, miraculous things. Things that today science says are not possible, right? People were healed of illnesses, lifelong disabilities, blindness, crippled people. They walked. A girl was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit through one of the apostles. Miraculous prison escapes, earthquakes. I mean, all sorts of things that literally seem unbelievable to us. And and prayers were answered in incredible and powerful ways. And the Galatians, the people in the churches in Galatia, they experienced these things firsthand. And so Paul reminds them of their experience. 
about the good news they heard when they learned about Jesus, when they believed in him, when they received the Spirit of God, and the Spirit came in power into their lives to prove the authenticity of their faith. And that's it. To prove the authenticity of their faith. They heard, they believed, and the Spirit came to prove that it was true. And now the question is, the question that Paul throws at them, did those crazy things that were proof Did they happen before you started thinking about circumcision? Did they happen after you believed? Yes, to both of those questions. So why now would you think that it's necessary to be circumcised? Now, the Galatians haven't yet fully made their decision. They're still pondering it. They're still trying to decide, is this really what God would have for us next? And and Paul says, you already have the Holy Spirit. God has already been at work in your lives, in your hearts. He's changed you. He's empowered you. He's revealed himself to you. He's proved the truth of the gospel of a risen Jesus, a risen Savior. So Paul's question is, how could you possibly add to your faith anything by being circumcised? How could any work that you think is going to progress your faith, progress you past the revelation of the Holy Spirit? There's nothing else out there. God has already shown himself to you, and it was through your faith. What more could you want than God's Holy Spirit alive and well and at work in you? The same, the very same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the Spirit that's already at work in their hearts and their lives, drawing them deeper, drawing us deeper into our relationship with God. So, All circumcision can add are some ice packs and a couple of days of daytime TV. I mean, really, it's not going to add anything as far as their faith is concerned. Okay? Question three, then. Are you so foolish? We already went into this. Are you so foolish? Again, think about what you're saying. John, this is what I said to my buddy. John, think about what you're saying. Like, this is just straight-up madness. If, if God revealed himself to you immediately after you believed that Jesus died and rose again to pay the price of your sins, and that's all that it requires for God to accept you is your faith, your belief, are you crazy? Now you're going to add suddenly something on top of that, being circumcised? What could it possibly do to grow your faith beyond God's work in your life already? And we have modern examples of this kind of thinking, modern-day examples. Let me, I'll just throw one out there. Let's say you came to church next week. You told me that the Mormon missionaries had stopped by your house, and they told you that in addition to Jesus, you also needed to stop drinking coffee and wear secret underwear, okay? And you told me, maybe you thought they're right, okay? Maybe that would make you closer to God. I would honestly say, are you crazy? Like, really, what could you add to your faith that you don't already have? Did you suffer some sort of head trauma this week? Why would you give up your freedom in Christ, who's already proved his power to you in your life, to chase after some empty rituals that add nothing to what Jesus did for you on the cross? Why would you do that? Are you crazy? I, I, I just, I wouldn't understand What could not drinking coffee, what could some regulations, what could secret underwear add to the work of the Holy Spirit? Nothing. 
Absolutely nothing, right? Question four. Having begun by the Spirit, having begun by the Spirit, are you now going to be perfected through the flesh? You know, you're dead in your flesh. You were dead in your flesh. You met Jesus who brought you to life through the Spirit. And now you're going to go back to trusting in the flesh? It's, it's totally nonsensical. How does that make any sense at all? It would be like my three-year-old son, who were, were almost finished potty training. It would be like him coming back to me after being potty trained and saying, Daddy, you know what? I really I want to go back to wearing diapers. I really like being able to poo in my pants and walk around until you and mom smell it and change me. It's just nonsense, right? None of us in this room want to go back to diapers. Do you? I don't think so, right? I mean, it's funny, but, but th- this is like what Paul's saying. You've matured. You understand it's through faith alone. Why would you go back to trusting in works of the flesh? It doesn't make any sense. You became convinced of your sinful nature, your inability to do enough good. If, if, if you can't drink coffee, if you have to wear secret underwear, what other things do you have to add to that? I'm just using Mormonism. Good works in any regards. How many other things are you going to have to add to it before you finally realize, I'm good enough? You don't know. I don't know. So why would you give up understanding your sinful nature, grace through the cross of Christ, faith in him, you're not good enough to earn salvation, trusting in Christ for your salvation, and now you're going to go back to trying to do enough good works? It's just illogical, like my son deciding he wants to go back to diapers. Now you can see why Paul is so worked up and so frustrated. The decision that the Galatians are considering, it's just, it's silly, it's foolish, it's unwise, it's childish. It's literally nonsensical. It doesn't make any sense at all. Then question five, he says, did you suffer so many things in vain? Here, he he reminds them of the price that they've paid to get this far. As Christians, we suffer for our faith. And and I would go so far as to say, if you haven't suffered anything for your faith, you may not be pursuing Jesus like you should be pursuing Jesus. I mean, Christians suffer for our faith. We give up our time, right? A lot of times it'd be easier to sit and stay home and watch a Cardinals game. I'm going to go to church, okay? A little sacrifice, We give up our money. We're encouraged to tithe, to sacrifice for the body of Christ. We're ridiculed a lot of times for what we believe. People think that we're crazy. uh, Our secular culture mocks us. Uh, I was flipping through channels this week and turned to Family Guy, and there was some, like, church service on, and and it was just so ludicrous what what our secular culture thinks about what Christians believe. And I I was offended. I was hurt by it. You know, some people are rejected by their families. They suffer. They're discriminated at work. Far worse in other countries. We're fortunate to have freedom here. There are other countries where people are literally physically abused and killed for what they believe, for their faith in Jesus. And I think for the church in Galatia, they must have paid a price to believe in Christ. At at this point in time, Christianity was a new sect. It was misunderstood. And in the ancient world, the older something was, the older a belief was, the more credibility it had. 
That's not the case for our culture, right? We want the newest cell phone, the latest updates. We want the most uh, recent information. We believe that new religions on the scene have validity because they're new and we've progressed, right? Not the case for the church in Galatia. As they told their friends that they've picked up a new religion, they must have been persecuted, reviled, made fun of, mocked, abused, To walk away from a historically established faith in Judaism or paganism or whatever it might have been and and believe in a new faith centered on Jesus must have brought persecution. And Paul's question, did you suffer everything you suffered for the sake of Jesus for nothing? You endured all that suffering all these years for that period of time and now you're going to walk away and say that it was meaningless? Did you do it for nothing? Did you hold fast through the persecution only now to walk away from faith in Christ to believe in good works? Don't do it. That's his plea. Please don't do it. Don't leave grace in Christ. Now, all of these questions are rhetorical tools. They're they're meant to persuade his audience not to make the mistake they're considering. Okay? And in the sixth and final question, Paul transitions and he really puts the nail in the coffin uh, for the the arguments of the people in Galatia who are spreading a false gospel. And and this is meant to really hit home and, 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 and help those people who are considering circumcision to change their mind and hold fast in Christ, okay? He's gonna now take up the argument of the false teachers who are promoting circumcision and use it against them. Okay, a very powerful form of uh, uh, debate here. He says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Again, does this all happen because you heard and believed in the name of Jesus? Yes. It didn't happen after you started engaging in good works. And he says, Just as Abraham believed God, And it was counted to him as righteousness. So here's what's going on. Paul starts this church in the region of Galatia. He tells the people there that the only way to heaven, the only way to right relationship with God, is through faith in Jesus. Now sometime after leaving the region of Galatia to go plant other churches, some false teachers come in who have a background in Judaism. And they start saying, yes, Jesus is good, But to really be saved, to really honor God, you also have to be circumcised. You also have to go through this act of good works. Just like Abraham did, right? Abraham is the prototypical Jew. He's like the perfect example of what it means to be a Jew. And they say, we need to be like Abraham. And Abraham was circumcised. In order to really love and follow Jesus, you have to do what Abraham did. So get circumcised. And Paul says, okay, fair enough. You want to be like Abraham? Let's be like Abraham. What was it that made Abraham righteous in God's eyes? How did God's call on Abraham's life happen? It's found in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, but let me sum it up. God shows up and he tells Abraham, Abraham, I've got a plan for your life. I want you to trust me. Go to this land over there. I'm going to make you and your descendants into a great nation, and the whole world is going to be blessed through you. At this point, Abraham is 90 years old. He doesn't have any children, 
okay? I don't know about you, but I probably would have been like, uh, God, you're a little bit late, and that piece of property over there stinks. I'm going to stay right here, okay? But what does Abraham do? He goes. He believes. In faith, he follows through with what God calls him to do. He believes God. He goes. He trusts in the promises of God. He believes that when God says he will do something, that God will follow through and do what he says. His promises endure. Read verses 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Do you see now? Abraham was a great man of faith. So Paul says, the true sons of Abraham are those who have faith like Abraham. Know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul says, Anyone with faith like Abraham's faith is truly a son of Abraham. Anyone who believes in the enduring promises of God through Jesus. This is the part that really blows my mind. What Paul's implying here is that somehow Abraham believed in Jesus. I don't understand how that works, but that's what Paul is saying. And and in this promise that he mentions, in you shall all the nations be blessed, the end of verse 8. In that promise, where is there a mention of circumcision? If you go back to Galatia, or Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, there's no mention of circumcision. God doesn't say in this approach to Abraham, and you should be circumcised. The reason is because circumcision came as a sign of the covenant 14 years later. After the fact, way after the fact. So Paul says, nuts to those who say that circumcision is required to be like Abraham. Forget it. They're ignorant. They don't know what they're talking about. Abraham wasn't even circumcised when God gave him the promise. So how does it come about? It's through faith. It was Abraham's faith in God that connected him to God's purposes for his life. And then Paul says it's it's the indisputable presence of the Holy Spirit that's proof that the Galatians are already God's people. The law had nothing to do with it. And it therefore cannot be a requirement. If God blessed them with the Holy Spirit after they believed, then works are simply not necessary for us to have salvation. Now the extrapolation of that truth is that there's no Jesus and anything. In this situation, it's Jesus and circumcision. For us, there's no Jesus and anything. It's just Jesus. That's it. It's just faith in Jesus. That he died for your sins. That he rose from the dead. And that he sits at the throne, at the right hand of the throne of God the Father. That's it. It's just Jesus. Simply Jesus. And Paul concludes this first half of Galatians 3 by reminding us of exactly what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He says, anyone who fails to keep every part of God's law is under a curse. I'm I'm paraphrasing. In other words, all of us, right? Again, we talked about that last week. You can't do it. Go ahead and try. 
go for an experiment. Let me know how it goes. I'm pretty certain I can tell you the end of the outcome right now. Try to uphold all 613 Old Testament laws. You're going to blow it. Especially when you look at it through the lens that Jesus did when he said anyone who hates somebody has already committed murder. I mean, you're, you're doomed to blow it. Okay? You can try if you'd like to. Let me know how it goes. But I can tell you, you cannot live up to the standard of God. So we're all under this curse, every human who has ever lived. And he says in verse 11, it's evident, no one is justified by God by the law because we're not good enough to uphold it. And then verses 13 and 14 take us to the crux of what the letter to the Galatians is all about. Let me read it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He quotes Deuteronomy 21-23. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So he says, it's not good works, it's through Christ. The curse of the law is lifted. The curse of sin and death is lifted. He lifts it through his substitutionary atonement. By standing in our place, becoming cursed for us, so that instead of us being cursed, we can finally stand in right relationship with God through Christ. It's beautiful, isn't it? And in in doing so, Jesus opens the door of salvation beyond just the Jews. Beyond just the Jews. To the Gentiles, to the rest of us, to anyone who don't have Jewish heritage. He makes it possible for all of us to inherit the blessings of Abraham through faith in Christ. And he concludes this part of his argument by coming full circle back to the Holy Spirit. If you go back to Galatians chapter 3, the first couple of verses, he starts talking about the Spirit as the proof of what God has done in your lives. And now he's going to bring it full circle back to the Holy Spirit. The promised Spirit that we receive through faith, not good works. Let me read verse 14 again. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit, again, capital S, through faith. Now, here's what I think is most profound about everything that Paul includes in this section of Galatians. And I think this is where we find our takeaway. So let me kind of wrap up with this. You know, the law is good. We discussed that in detail. The law is good. We believe that if you live and you don't kill people, you don't steal, you don't covet their stuff, you're going to have a good life. Like the world would be a better place if we all adhered to just those basic principles, right? We agree the law is good. The problem is we don't live by those principles. We believe they're good, but we disobey them anyway. And so the law, the the, the problem with the law is that while it makes very clear what God's intentions, God's requirements, and God's desires for humanity are, what his expectations are, it doesn't motivate us to do good. If you went out and you memorized all 613 rules of the Old Testament, you wouldn't be motivated to obey them. That's not how the law works. All it does is work to prove that we're sinful. And so the law existed to keep God's people in line, to keep them in bounds, to show them when they had crossed a line. But the law itself doesn't help anyone live in faith and obedience to God. It really doesn't. 
That's why Paul says it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. So in contrast to the law, then, Paul references the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God himself. Where the law fails is not just in its power to save. The law fails also in its ability to empower people to do good. Let me say that again. It's really crucial. Where the law fails is not just in its power to save, but also in in its ability to empower people to do good. The law doesn't empower us to do good. It just shows us when we failed to do good. So the Spirit, on the other hand, it not only saves by giving people faith, it also empowers those of faith to do good and to follow God's law. So what, what happens here is the law is a demotivator. It's a demotivator. The Spirit of God is the great motivator, drawing us to greater faith in Him. So here's the practical implication for us, okay? Seeking to do good works, seeking just to do good works, even for the Christian, is really depressing. I mean, maybe that's my experience only, but I'm pretty sure that you can relate to this. You know, I try and be good for even just a day, and at the end of the day, I think back through my miserable attempt to be good, and it honestly makes me depressed. It really does. I'm like, man, I'm terrible at this. Like, I'm a pastor. Like, I I should be better than most people. (laughs) Not. I'm, I'm just not good at being good. It's a terrible irony. And the more I try to be good, the more depressed I get, the more deflated I feel, because the more I realize I'm just terrible at being good. I really am. In and of my own self, I'm just bad at being good. But when I live in the promised spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, through faith in Jesus, it's a totally different experience. Totally different experience. Let me try and give a small example. Right now we have four-day twins at home. Um, And honestly, every night is miserable. Um, I love my children. Last night was bearable because my wife knows how stressed out I get about Sunday. So she like took the whole thing and and was pretty much up all night. Um, But the night before that was just awful. Like when I'm awake at three in the morning for the fourth time that night, being good just doesn't cut it. Like I want to take that poopy diaper and just throw it against the wall. Right? I, I realized that I might have some anger issues. I, I, when, you, when you've changed a diaper for the seventh time in like four hours, on the same child, I'm talking about one child, I'm not talking about two, I'm talking about one, you just you want to lose your mind, right? And, and sitting there feeding this kid thinking, how do I be good? Like, how do I treat my wife well at three in the morning? How do I treat my child well at three in the morning? Just doesn't cut it. Like, I'm just overwhelmed by by anger and, and sleepiness, okay? But when I'm sitting there on my bed in the half-light and I'm looking at my child and I realize what an incredible blessing it is for us to have a child, to have two, especially after a miscarriage that we had not too long ago. Two little gifts. And I realize by the power of God, I can change another diaper without losing it. Really, it sounds like just stupidly simple, but that's how basic I had to get. Like, God, you're here with me. Give me the strength to change one more diaper without flipping a lid. Not in my power, because I don't have the power in myself to do it, 
but through the power of the Holy Spirit that comes through faith in Christ. And I can change another diaper, right? I can go with 45 minutes of sleep in a 12-hour night or 8 hours, whatever. And, guys, this isn't just cheesy Christianity. Like, sometimes when I'm sitting where you're sitting and I'm listening to a pastor, I'm like, this is just cheesy Christianity. Like, it's fluffy and meaningless. This is not cheesy Christianity. This is not fluffy and meaningless. This is what it means when Paul says, like we looked at in Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me. And, and it's this kind of spirit, life in the spirit, that's applicable to every situation that you can think of. I mean, I'm making light of poopy diapers at three in the morning, but it's applicable there. And it's applicable to the far other end of the spectrum in the crazy tragedies that life throws us, right? In the uncertainty of a job transition. In the crazy uncertainty of losing your job. How do you respond? Do you freak out and worry yourself sick, thinking that the world is just going to mow you over when there's that many hundreds and thousands of other people out there looking for the same job you're looking for? Do you get overwhelmed and shut down? Or do you find power through the Spirit of God to trust that He's going to take care of you? like he takes care of the the birds and the flowers. What's it going to be? Or in the pain and the grief of losing a loved one or facing some sort of debilitating illness, do you come unraveled because there's nothing to hope in? Nothing to hope in. Or do you have faith in a God whose promises endure? What's it going to be? In the chaos of of a marriage that's breaking down, do you lash out and wound your spouse because you're wounded? Or do you invite the Spirit of God to comfort you, to comfort your heart, to empower you, to love your wife or your husband instead of wounding them back? I mean, that's the difference that the Spirit of God makes in our lives. In the fear of loneliness, the fear of depression, do you withdraw further into yourself and feed the thoughts that are self-hatred and despair? Or do you find strength in the Spirit of God to run to the arms of Jesus who loves you, who cares for you, who died for you? That's the difference that the Holy Spirit makes. It's not cliche. It's not cheesy. It's not fluffy. It's legit. And, and these are the kinds of obstacles that good works just can't overcome. You ever seen somebody trusting in good works and their life falls apart and they fall apart with it? That doesn't have to happen for us because our faith is in Christ, right? Circumcision isn't going to restore your marriage. Secret underwear isn't going to give you career direction. No amount of good works is going to give you hope for the life to come. That's found only in Christ Jesus. Only through faith in Him. And through all the craziness that life throws at us. Really, only Jesus and His Spirit alive and at work within us can enliven and empower us to overcome. That's the only place that we can go for that kind of hope. Now, the the reason why so many Christians never really experience this kind of life is because all too often we're still relying on our good works. I mean, do you sit here and wonder, man, 
that is a beautiful description of the spirit alive in me. But when I go to a church, I don't really feel that all that much. It feels more like a whole bunch of people who go to church to try and be good enough to earn God's favor. The reason why so many Christians never really experience this kind of life is because all too often we've surrendered our lives to Jesus, but we're really not trusting in him. We're still trusting in our good works. We're still trusting in ourselves, in our efforts, in our ability. I want to encourage you guys to just surrender that. Give it up to God. Let him take care of it for you. Believe in Jesus. Have faith like Abraham. Trust in God's promises. And let's be a church that believes in Christ, not only for salvation from sin and from death and from evil, but believes in him for this life and what God can do in our hearts and in our lives. Let's trust that where the law is powerless, where good works are powerless, Jesus is enough. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you so much that you are enough. And and God, please, I pray for any people in this room still this morning who have not surrendered their lives to you, who have not given their lives to you in faith. God, I pray that you would just yank on their hearts this morning. That they would feel deep down a a desperate need for you to save them and they would turn to you, God. I pray that they would surrender and stop trying to live it through good works. And Lord, for those of us who believe, God, for me and my life, for the people in this room who are trusting already in Christ for salvation, God, may we stop turning from the cross and putting faith back in good works. May we trust wholeheartedly in you. May you invigorate us, empower us through the, through the Holy Spirit to have faith, deep, life-changing faith, faith that overcomes broken marriages, wounded hearts, depressed nights, lonely feelings, uncertainty. God, please do that in our hearts and in our lives this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.